This is like the most intimidating thing to be looking at while I'm working. <laughs> like he has this on his desk. What are we looking at here, Jeff? Oh, this is oh yeah, sorry. This is this is Way's daytime Emmy. And like No pressure. Yeah. I'm just like, oh yeah, just just working working at Emmy award winning artist Whaley's desk. I don't have to perform. <laughs> I don't even know if awards for podcasters, but I know we're not going to get any. You, hopefully some of it will like rub off on you, like the, the glow, kind of winner's radiation. You know, what show? Oh, it was for Carmen Sandiego. Oh. Yeah. It's actually, it's funny because I, I was aware there was a Carmen Sandiego show and then I like realized that I knew someone who was doing storyboarding for it. And, uh, and then, yeah. And then he won a daytime Emmy. And well, that actually sounds like a pretty good segue. If we are talking about <laughs> very talented people who have lived in Vancouver. Yeah, there we go. We have a guest today who is another very talented person living in Vancouver. Uh, welcome, Kathleen Jacques. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. So what book are we reading today? So today we are reading uh, Through the Woods stories by Emily Carroll. And the character building question that I have brought for the group today is, can you tell us about an image in a book that you found scary or creepy as a child? And it could be a comic, but it doesn't have to be. Mm, good Ooh. question. Um, well, I'm Jonathan, and uh, I think the the first thing I thought of was there were a lot of picture books I read as a kid that didn't necessarily scare me, but they were part of the reason I liked them is because they were a little unsettling. I think there were, uh, I think it was Maurice Sendak that there were some books that I read, like not Where the Wild Things Are, because that's well-loved and not particularly scary, but I think there were some other books of his that I read that were kind of, I don't know, very strange. Like I did like, I really liked strange books as a kid. So that's, that's what comes to mind for me. I'll jump in. So I'm Jeff Ellis, and it took me a, a little bit of thought, but I think the one that comes to mind is, um, as a child, I really enjoyed reading uh roll doll books and i wish i could remember the illustrator that did all the different roll doll books but he had this sort of fun messy kind of style but specifically i just remember the bfg and just like some of the drawings from that and maybe it's partly just the story but just like that was one of the scariest picture slash storybooks that I remember as a child. Um, uh, uh, the illustrator is Quentin Blake. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there were some of those pictures of the, of the evil giants by Quentin Blake uh, were super creepy as a little kid. Uh, yeah. And I'm Jam. And it's funny because when I was reflecting on this question, I certainly read uh, scary books when I was a kid. Uh, the one that jumps to mind is Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Ooh. where uh, the illustrations there were very arresting and they were supposed to be scary, but I don't remember finding any of them particularly scary as a kid. I found them very interesting. And the first thing that I can remember, the first thing that jumps to mind, I was actually a little bit older. So it was Inuyasha by uh, Takahashi Rumiko has some really, really good monster illustrations in it. And uh, it was one of the first books where I was really struck by the fact like, oh my God, I'm reading a book and this is such a scary thing that I'm looking at, but it's just a drawing on a piece of paper and it's managing to make me feel this way. This is really, really cool. <laughs> oh, that's such a relatable feeling. And these are such good answers. My first one in mind is, as a kid, I had a big illustrated anthology of fairy tales that included several 
kind of really scary images in it to the point where I kind of suspect maybe my parents didn't quite realize how scary this book was. And if they had, they might not have let me have it. But uh, one of the greatest hits in it is there is a page spread in this book where in this story, a demon woman has like stolen the protagonist's face and is in the process of putting it on like a mask. And this is taking place in this like horrible disgusting kitchen full of like rats and human bones and so just like straight up you know metal album content that I look at as a kid and it's sort of this thrill of as a kid of this like oh this is I'm looking at this thing that's so scary but it is it is just a page in a book and it can't hurt me and the thrill of a kid who kind of feels like they're getting away with something uh, kind of interacting with the scary content and this book uh, I just read and read and read until the covers literally fell off a bit and I took it when I moved out. Oh, it's so fun. Jam, have you heard the controversy over scary stories to tell in the dark that they republished it with different illustrations? I did hear about that. And I think I, I was part of the group that was like, no, the illustrations are essential to this work. You can't mess around <laughs> with that. Uh, oh, yeah. just, I consider them quite timeless. And yeah, it was one of those things where in my in my class that that book got passed around a lot and it was it was always really compelling. So I do I did hear about that and I was like, hey, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, I will say that I still see the original version in classrooms and kids are still obsessed with that book. Good reason. We have kind of generations of kids with the having this experience with the same books. <laughs> okay, so um Kathleen, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Emily Carroll? Yeah, I would love to. All right. So Emily Carroll is an artist and writer who's best known for creating horror comics. And her work tends to be really like visually inventive and expressive and live in this sort of aesthetic tension between horror imagery and things that are elegant and pretty. And her stories are often like evocative and ambiguous rather than being just being straightforward. Uh, A lot of people's first encounter with her comics, including mine, um, was when the story His Face All Red went viral online in 2010 around Halloween. Uh, So this book that we're talking about today, Through the Woods, contains a print version of that story plus four other stories. And that that came out in 2014 and won a bunch of awards, including an Eisern and Ignatz. So um, Emily Carroll's also done several other projects. Um, her most recent book uh, that she both wrote and drew is When I Arrived at the Castle, which is a wild horror story that also has erotic elements. And over the years, she's also published many short horror comics online. And those, and her web-based comics often take advantage of the format with interesting things like incorporating like long scrolling and non-linear navigation, mixing up like page formats and interfaces and adding bits of animation and going for that kind of infinite comics uh, experimentation. And also she is Canadian. And according to her public bio, she currently lives in Ontario with her wife and their pets. I am a huge fan and I'm excited to talk about this book. Yeah, I am also a huge fan. I think uh, I think you're right. According to the bio, like Through the Woods is like the first uh, print collection that she came out with of her, her horror comics. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so cool. All, all of her follow-ups, if you enjoy this book, have been tremendous as well. So it's, it's, exci- it's exciting to go back and reread this one. Yeah, this one for me, I sort of uh, debated like, oh, is this, is this the one to pick? And it is that I think maybe of all within the past decade, this might be the book I've taken off my shelf most often to, you know, look at again and, and reread. And it's a nice, you know, um, she uh, she works a lot. um, A lot of her work is like short format stories. And this is a nice one that's presented all together as, you know, a book that we can talk about. You know, I feel, I feel obligated. One of us has to include a little, "Mm," uh, for her being Canadian. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I met Emily Carroll at TCAF years ago, and I kind of regret that I only just recently purchased and, like, I basically read Through the Woods because of this podcast, and this is an excellent book that's been waiting for me to discover it for a while now. Um, So yeah, thanks, Kathleen, for suggesting this. Yeah, Yeah. it's very... 
exciting. This is one of those books that I'm, you know, I'm sort of thrilled to find out that someone hasn't read it so that I can recommend it and also envious of the idea that someone gets to read it for the first time. Uh, (laughs) It's funny because like when you suggested it, I was like, oh yeah, I totally have that book. And then I walked to my shelf and I couldn't find it. And I think it's because I bought it for John. (laughs) Yes, I have your copy. (laughs) Well, it's, it's not, it's a, it's a copy that I, I bought for you uh, <laughs> and then selfishly read myself before giving it to you. Uh, so I ended up reading the digital edition. Luckily, uh, Vancouver Public Library has an ebook copy. So nice. if anyone is looking for a way to read this in advance of this podcast, because we will be spoiling the whole thing, VPL's got it. And it's, it's, uh, it's a PDF edition. However, I will say that I think the print edition is much better. Like every page is full bleed and it really takes advantage of the pace of page turns. So if you can get your hands on a physical copy to read, or if you want to add to your library, it's a very worthy investment. Yeah. It, the print edition is gorgeous. It's got uh, like an embossed and textured cover and the color is just like gorgeous. Very highly recommend. Yeah. I, I've been doing a lot of uh, digital books recently due to the state of the world, but um, I also recently decided I really wanted to stop buying off of giant multinational corporations if I can avoid it. So I put in an order at my local bookstore and I was really glad I got a physical copy of Through the Woods because, yeah, just when I held it in my hand, I was like, ooh, I made the right choice. This is a book that was like... Someone really cared about the experience of holding this book in your hand, you know? I don't say that about all books, but this seems like a book that really, yeah, someone really designed the experience of this book. And, and I, yeah, I think the colors pop really nicely off the page. And uh, I was glad that I, I, I got the print edition for this one. Yeah, and longtime listeners will know that I'm a digital first reader. So for me to go out there and say, like, this is this is one worth picking up. I'm actually, I'm thinking of going out and just buying it again. So I have it. Uh, it's funny, like the pandemic, you say it pushed you to go more towards digital editions, Jeff. I, it has had the opposite effect on me. So oh. I'm I'm looking at my library and starting to curate it a little bit more deliberately and to see, like, okay, well, where are the gaps in my collection and what do I need to fill out? Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting how that has has changed us all well i mean i i feel like i'm starting to change back because i actually i think leaving my leaving pulp fiction books having purchased multiple books and put this book on order uh, i actually had a little dopamine hit and i don't get a dopamine hit when i buy same day off of amazon so i think i'm going to try to make more uh purchases from pulp fiction books for that reason (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's um, it's interesting talking about um, the print edition of this book, which I also have, and of course, it's it's a beautiful book, and it really, really does benefit from um, from the beautiful book design. I, something I was interested to run across when I was double checking some details about the you know publication of this, uh, leading up to doing this episode, is I ran into a quote from the author herself saying she thinks uh, that it was. The story in this book, uh, His Face All Red, that was originally a web-based comic, uh, that it was a, uh, a challenge to adapt it for the print version, and she feels like the web version of that one specifically might work a little bit better and be more suspenseful. And I can cut, they're, they're both great. I can sort of see it that the, the web version, I'm not sure if everyone's seen it, um, the builds to its ending with like a long, long scroll as the main yeah. character kind of descends into the hole. Mm-hmm. And that's something you can't just, um, it has to be different in the print book. And, you know, oh. I would mm-hmm. say not necessarily, I would have a hard time saying, you know, better or worse when they both work extremely well but it's yeah it's a different set of considerations what makes uh suspenseful pacing in a in a print book yeah that's interesting i now that you like as soon as you mentioned that there were some concerns about the presentation of his face all red my mind immediately went to the last scene and i was like oh that must have been an infinite canvas scene um and i could see the experience of that yeah feeling different if you're sort of scrolling this long image as opposed to 
kind of turning the pages. But I mean, I would say, not that, I mean, I don't know if Emily Carroll's listening, but Emily's, if Emily Carroll's listening, I think that the print edition does a great job of presenting the scene. Uh, but I could see how it's different compared to the webcomic version. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that the print edition of this works so, so well is because Emily herself is, she just seems to be an absolute master of user experience, right? Uh, You mentioned, Kat, that like on the web, when she does her web comics, it's absolutely like very contingent on, okay, this is when you will click the page and it'll take a split second to load and I can change the background. I can change the interface and take you out of the experience or, or suck you into the experience by having something super long and unexpected. And the way that, you know, when I first opened this book again for the first time, uh, I was actually very sad to be reading the digital edition because the, the illustrations bleed way off the page. And I, I, even the first like two or three pages, which introduce you to it's like okay now we're going into a book you have these beautiful spreads of like it's just solid black but with the white woods and you know you turn the page and there's a little figure like moving across uh the spread and it's uh, it is not the same digitally Mm -hmm. but it's it's an absolute mastery of uh the page turn experience oh yeah that's this book uh, i mean that's one of the main ways that the you know, horror comics in print that can get closest to what you'd call like a jump scare in film is those page turn moments. And, um, and yeah, this, this book has some incredible kind of page turn reveals and ways of using the, uh, the way that, yeah, the turns and the spreads work together. Yeah. Like that was one of the best parts of rereading this book is looking for the ways that she does the horror genre in a medium that I haven't read a lot of horror in. Uh, Cause it's a very different experience. Like the way that you sort of leave clues or uh, leave mysteries or leave things unknown is, is quite different than it would be in uh, any kind of animated or video format. One part that springs to mind is in the first story, our neighbor's house, there's a, a panel where, I'm pretty sure I missed this the first time I read the book, but the whoever this villainous character is that we never really see clearly, the, the man with the hat, is hiding under a curtain or a bed. Um, and it's like so subtle. There's just like, the only way you can notice it is because there's like a, a bright white line on his hat uh, and you can't even see the whole hat. So that like you could very easily miss that this is happening. And it's like such an important event that he's in their house or is he well that's exactly it we don't really know like it's could all just be in her imagination but either way it's like it's very subtle and it's presented in a way where it's possible to miss it yeah no it's you know what okay it's really funny that you bring this up jonathan because i was just flipping through the pages and I suddenly stopped and was like, hey, wait, there's this like elbow with a hat. When did I, I didn't <laughs> notice it. that. And and then you brought it up. So yeah, um, I just <laughs> noticed the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, He's in your like... house. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I love that. I love that you, the, the storytelling relies on your comics literacy. Like you need to pay attention or you're going to miss things. Whereas I feel like in a, a movie, um, like movies are a very different format and it's much, much more, uh, what's the Marshall McLuhan thing with a, a, a hot medium versus a cold medium oh, yeah, yeah, comics. Yeah. You have to do work to get the story. Mm. Interesting. I think that's interesting that uh, use the term uh, comics literacy for this. Cause that's, you know, that's absolutely correct what you're describing here. And I was also thinking about this book as a piece of, I just love it as a piece of visual storytelling and something I was thinking about is how it really strikes me as something I love is when it feels like a comic has kind of visual and sequential narrative influences other than just other comics and especially other comics in the same genre Mm. so this feels like the way that it treats its kind of imagery and the pacing and the flow through it like it feels like it's influenced by things besides comics like it, it 
like traditions of like picture book illustration and graphic design that are that kind of add up to something that yeah i don't have the right word for this maybe but it's uh <laughs> like more than the sum of its parts yeah that yeah that's a good way to put it i yeah, agree like, with there, that there's some uh there's some like really strong sort of fairy tale um elements and, and it's like never uh never very deliberate except for maybe there's the one part the the very last story is very clearly little red riding hood but there are other sort of things that aren't actually from a fairy tale but feel like they are and yeah, like that's yeah. i think that gives it a lot of power to me yeah. one of the clear influences is uh nursery rhymes and traditional storytelling because the way that Emily writes is such a, a rhythmic way yes. uh like especially the the second story I think was the one with the the lady's hands are cold mm -hmm. and the way it describes you know a wide white manner and uh it has this this repeated song almost that's coming from the the dead woman who's you know chopped up in all the walls it's very very arresting and very cool but what the way that she bends it, I find, is that if you think of a traditional storybook, at least, I don't know, it's been a long time since I've read, read a storybook. The storybooks that I had as a child, you'd have these beautiful illustrations that would cover both pages, right? Mm. But then you'd have a block of text somewhere in the middle. And the text was always very static and it was related, but it was usually just a thing apart from the illustrations, whereas Emily very much weaves the lettering. Everything is hand lettered and it's it's woven through the illustration. And I feel like how she's guiding the reader through the experience of reading the text over the page, that's where a lot of the comics literacy uh, really comes into play, despite mm. it not always having a traditional panel and bubble structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is um, another one of those works that makes me reconsider how I've just really fallen into, like, digital lettering. And, like, this is another comic where it's just like, wow, like, the letters cannot be removed from the artwork. Like, they're completely interweaved with each other. There's such personality coming out of, like, you know, each caption because, like, there's... I don't know. It's it's a funny thing. I, I see this in like Linda Berry's work too, where it's like this shift between cursive and block letters that I feel is something that works. I don't know. For some reason, I see this a lot in comics and it seems to work really effectively. This sort of change between like cursive and, and, and standard text. And you can use it to emphasize different words and, and bring out different emotions. It's really fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like, like, she puts in, like, specific adjectives for to describe things, which you wouldn't necessarily need to do in a comic because you have the picture of the thing. But I feel like, like, actually saying that it's a wide-brimmed hat, like, puts a level of emphasis on it that the picture alone wouldn't. Mm. And it kind of, it feels like you're kind of searching for that then. Like, She's told you it's a wide-brimmed hat, and so you deliberately look at the hat to confirm, is it a wide-brimmed hat? Yes, it is. Whereas mm. if it was just the picture, you might notice that. You might think it's important. You might not. Um, so it's, it's really interesting the way she sort of controls the narrative by, like, leaving clues, uh, like kind of like leaving breadcrumbs where you kind of piece the story together from this, these words and these pictures and... There were a few stories where I felt like uh, I had to like go back a few pages to because I was left. I felt like I was left with an impression of what happened, and I had to go back and check to see whether it actually happened or whether that was just my impression. Mm. Which is a really interesting way to experience a horror story, where you have to kind of go back and forth to solve the mystery. Yeah. yeah, most of the stories are left to the reader to interpret the ending. I think very very few have what you could consider a concrete ending. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that overall, just reading all of these stories, I was just really impressed with how much is said, or how much is implied without directly, you know, drawing a picture of it or, or, or saying it in the, in the prose. Like, 
there's a lot of just stuff that's kind of like inferred or things happening in the in the periphery um and it yeah it kind of leaves itself open um where you can kind of fill in the blanks and uh i think that really is like the key to like successful horror i think if you if you show too much it i don't know it ends up kind of coming off a little too ham-fisted where i think this approach where you sort of leave it up to the reader like your own imagination is going to be way creepier than whatever the author is going to like depict for you you know <laughs> yeah i think that's true that the and as you were saying john like horror in comics is a very different experience from horror in film where in film it relies a lot on jump scare imagery and maybe horrifying imagery i think film can get a lot more visceral because it has the uh, it has the advantage of motion and light and sound that they can use to really terrify you. Whereas to me, the horror comics that I've read so far, they seem to rely on unsettling you. Mm -hmm. uh, so the experience of horror is a lot more psychological. Yeah, I think unsettling is a hundred percent. I think what you're going for with with a horror comic, like uh, even just like. Just some of the visuals, like, especially uh, the one that stood out to me, you were talking about uh, scary pictures, the nesting place. Yeah, that one was the scariest to me by far. Yeah. <laughs> just, just like the big reveal of the, the like, woman with like all these like red worms, like <laughs> coming out of her face. Like, I knew that. I knew that this woman was a monster, but, like, when I actually saw, like, what it was, which I guess I'm kind of contradicting myself, because here, yeah, like, seeing these red worms was, like, just, like, the way it's depicted. But even before that, just, like, the way that she's drawn, like, she just never looks quite right, like... Oh, yeah. I love way... that kind of stylistic choice where she's drawn like the uh, the line art on her skin is like white instead of black and out of the panels and it's just like oh, yeah, these, that. these subtle stylistic choices and in that story like absolutely i agree that that big reveal page turn with uh, rebecca's face is incredible and reading it again besides that i think maybe the page spread in that story that I find the most unsettling is the one that's kind of all in black and white um, when uh, Belle, the protagonist, is gotten up in the middle of the night going down the hall to, um, to check on Madame Beauchamp and she opens the door and you can tell by the way it's drawn it's like, and it's in this like, you know, dark night lighting conditions in the story where you can tell it's supposed to be something doesn't feel quite right, but it's and it's, it's it's very ambiguous what and she sort of as she sort of si she's silently at the door kind of drawn kind of weird and then you know later in the story there's the reveal that, of what is what's going on there and that wasn't really her but it's um yeah there's it's a yeah un unsettling it, Oh yeah, as yeah. Said, as that illustration word. was absolutely haunting of uh, Madame Beauchamp yeah. at the door. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the the power of having a, a drawn medium, where when something looks unsettling, you can't really be sure whether it's actually an unsettling thing or whether it's an unsettling feeling interpreting what you're seeing. Oh yeah, mm. yeah, and there's the that same story. There's the Earlier on, there's the scene with the chattering teeth. Oh, which, yeah. Which is just like, doesn't make any sense, but it's like very disturbing because it doesn't make any sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, very much like, what am I looking at here? Exactly. Yeah, that was such a great, like, that was such a great setup for sort of a callback because, like, you see, that's kind of one of the first signs that something's not right is you see the chattering teeth. Uh, in Rebecca's mouth, and then at the end of the story, like her brother's got the same chattering teeth, and it, like I don't know, that was such a great like callback. Um, yeah, and with no other clues, because her brother is like he seems like such a great guy, and like and he's 
one of the few characters who's like, oh, this is this is someone, this is a, a person you would want to spend time with. Like, this is not someone who's odd or unsettling or whatever. And it's like at the end, no, no, there's no way you can't save your brother. He's already gone. Yeah, yeah. Which I will say that was something else about, I think this was the standout story for me. But uh, there's something else I liked about um, the nesting place was like that like she basically tries to convince the monster that like, you know, basically you don't want to be anything. You don't want to have anything to do with humans because we're actually worse than you are. (laughs) And and then kind of convinces the monster like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't (laughs) I should just go away and not be around humans um, I kind of appreciated that as like a twist where, you know, she kind of frames it as like, well, because because the, the the monster says, oh, I'm going to basically infect all of these other people and, and all my children will like live in the city and be close to other humans so they can procreate. And her response is like, oh, the moment someone realizes that you're not human, like you're going to all your children are going to end up in labs. They're going to get dissected. They're going to be put in jars <laughs> um, I, I know. I I thought that was such an interesting kind of like approach to like uh, how she's trying to negotiate with this monster. Yeah, that's a, a good point, and I, I like it also as a setup for the twist at the end, where mm. her brother is also gone. Uh, because at that point, it feels like maybe she's successfully escaped. Uh, but then no, like there's yeah. another monster that she has that might not be that she might not be able to convince of the same thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I liked the part where Rebecca's rebuttal when uh, it wasn't quite a rebuttal to this, I guess pre-rebuttal, but her argument is that it would be really easy to take you because you know you don't have any friends. Uh, uh, most people uh, would think that your possession is an improvement on your personality. And it's like, oh, man. Would... <laughs> That's really dark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, I agree, was, yeah, I think one of the most haunting parts of the story, yeah, the panel where you see that Belle's fate, that she kind of realizes she's she's probably right, and that's that's terrifying. I mean, uh, even more so because, like, the monster makes the point that like Rebecca was much like Mabel before and that like the monster made Rebecca more attractive and more outgoing and more personable. And so, yeah, like basically made the point that like, Oh yeah, people saw this as a huge improvement. Like, (laughs) like, yeah, I thought that was super dark. (laughs) It's interesting how uh, the story, I, I'm curious if the rest of you felt this way too. It felt like the stories got scarier throughout the book, which I I would think that as a a writer would be hard to do because it's so hard to sort of see your own work from the point of view of a reader to know, okay, I've written both these stories, but this one is scarier. So I'm going to put it later in the book. Yeah, no, I think the story organization was perfect. I mean, the, the conclusion was just like, yeah, that was the perfect final note to leave it on. You know, I love that as kind of a reinterpretation of the Red Riding Hood story, you know? And just like, I mean, just the the takeaway of, you know, you have the, the girl in a red cloak going through the woods, but then the kind of twist is that she, she doesn't get accosted by a wolf and sort of says, oh, I'm so lucky I didn't run into a wolf. And then the wolf comes to her window and basically says, oh yeah, you were lucky this time and you've been lucky before, but you only ever need to be unlucky one time for me to win. Um, I don't know. That was such a great kind of like final note, you know? Uh, Yeah. I think that was a perfect way to end, end this series or end this book, you know? Yeah. And the book feels complete. I think quite often when you have a collection of shorts like this, it can, it can feel not like its own piece yeah. because you have too many disparate stories and it's like, okay, well, the disparate stories can continue forever or not, you know? And so I, th- I think Emily did a really, really good job of curating a list of stories and organizing in such a way where uh, with the, with the introductory pages and then 
the the forward, so to speak, and then this great conclusion that you mentioned, Jeff. Uh, I think it it helps the entire book feel complete on its own. Yeah, yeah, they sort of feel like. I mean, it's funny because, like, I would say each one has its own kind of flavor to it, but and even sometimes the art feels a little different, like the style mm. or the color, the approach to color shifts and such. But they also sort of feel very cohesive, like it sort of feels like it's all part of the same, I don't know, like uh, Emily Carroll's cinematic universe. <laughs> I agree. It's something where they all, it does feel like a cohesive book. And yet, um, yeah, each of them does feel distinct, even right down to they're each stylized in a slightly different way. And just in terms of the visuals, um, I think maybe, maybe visually my favorite story in this book is the ladies' hands are cold um, using that gorgeous kind of uh, blue and red and gold palette that is not typical of horror and um, as you mentioned uh, Jam with um, the kind of expressive lettering in the text kind of really being pushed with the song in it and something actually common to them that I really noticed reading through this again I really specifically love how she kind of creates a sense of place and also with decorative elements, specifically drawing these kind of like architectural details like windows and doors and furniture. And in that one that gets used to this kind of great effect with that wall and the, the setting, but that's something that is kind of common throughout, throughout these stories too. Oh yeah. Visually, but kind of in a different way in each. Yeah, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned a lady's cold hands because, yeah, that, I think, just the power of, like, kind of using, like, three primary colors for the the whole story, um, I think that was, like, a really bold choice that really paid off, like, just, yeah, very visually beautiful in its um, presentation, especially considering, in some ways, I feel like this was maybe, like, some of the, like, I feel like A Lady's Cold Hand was in some way sort of like one of the darker in terms of content because it's like it's sort of basically dealing with this like woman who's been dismembered and buried in different parts of the house like and yet it's sort of handled in a way that's like like it's very horrifying but it's also still um, very fairy tale yeah like it's you don't you don't you're not dwelling on the act of it. It's like the aftermath of it. It's implied. Yeah. Just the approach is, is very like deft, you know, uh, in dealing with like very unpleasant subject matter, but presenting it in a, in a way that's not going to completely like shut down your audience, you know? Yeah. And I think Emily's artwork goes a long way for that. It, it's, it's amazing that no matter what she's choosing to depict, even if sometimes it can get really grotesque, like in this particular story, the 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 moment where the husband is eating steak and it like really zooms in on his teeth oh. and the meat, absolutely horrifying. But uh, it's oh, still really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every page, every page yeah. is just incredibly beautiful. Like her line work is just so delicate and uh, embellished. I guess is a, is a good way to put it. And uh, it's, it's, it's joy. It's a joy to look at. One of my favorite parts or, or scenes, I guess, is in uh, My Friend Jenna, where mm. there's this ghost. And in some panels, the ghost has a heartbeat. So there's like, yeah. it's mostly just like a white blur. But then sometimes there's these red lines or, or veins shooting through it. Like that would be, if you gave me that as a script and asked me to draw it, I don't think I could succeed because it's such a, like you can picture it in your head as like a momentary thing, but to actually draw it as a momentary thing is like quite challenging and it's done so well. Oh, for sure. And that story also contains, okay, one of my personal favorite things in the world is when comics have something that's uh, a shot of a page where a character in universe has written or drawn something mm-hmm. and it doesn't look the same as the way that the rest of the artwork for in the the piece is. And I love, I love that double page spread of Jana's notes of like, and what she writes is nonsense that it's, and how it is a full, full double page spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a fun, that was a fun spread, especially because it's even got just like little, 
like um, ink smears from, I'm assuming, Emily Carroll's palm, and just, uh, <laughs> it, like, mixes between, like, pencil and ink, and um, and it changes orientation. Yeah, and it's got drawings that seem to have some relation to how the ghost thing is depicted, but there's, and it's always that ambiguity and that evocativeness of it where there is so much about this that you know, it feels like it clear there's some, this has meaning to it besides just this is nonsense, but we just, all we can do like the main character of the story is look at this and, and see that it's, it's just, it's wild and it's all over the place and there's a lot, a lot of elements to it. Yeah, yeah. The um the the kind of final panel on on my friend Jana was so good. Like just the you're sort of following this story about how the main character's friend Jana is being haunted by this ghost that ultimately, I don't know, like absorbs her or something and the kind of turn is that then her sister is seeing the ghost now attached to her. Like that was such a great I don't know, that's such a great sort of final panel there. Yeah, and that's that ambiguity with that. I think she really, like was, has it like transferred to her, or was it there along? But but she, you know, couldn't see it on herself. Mm. Ooh, I didn't even think of that. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I love that. There's kind of an implication in all of these stories of it being a historical setting, but we're given, like, uh, I could look at the costumes and probably tell you with a low degree of accuracy, oh, it's this time period. But mm-hmm. I think what what's interesting is how it kind of just implies a setting without the setting being all that important. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's not like the year was 1930 and I had just <laughs> you know, come from boarding school. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it gives you enough context to, you know, I'd say for most readers, kind of situate yourself saying like, oh, OK, I know the ballpark of where this is, where and when, when this is taking place. But yeah, yeah. It's... Yeah. And it gives it kind of like this vague, historic, timeless kind of quality that yeah. I think to me also speaks to the fairy tale influence. Because fairy tales to me are always kind of just vaguely historical, you know, like it takes place in the past, but depending on what you're reading, it could be, you know, the 1700s, the 1400s, like obviously these are very different time periods. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think setting them in the past generally, yeah, it works in the favor of these stories just because they have this sort of fairy tale feel to them that I think taking them into a more imprecise time period i think that enhances that feeling of it being kind of a fable and and yeah i think that works it works in its favor do we want to do final thoughts Uh, i i just i'm really glad i got to read this i think it's a really excellent excellent book it reminding me how how good horror in comics can be and uh, actually, I, 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 it's also making me, uh, I, I find it really inspiring, just the idea of kind of the the one-person anthology, essentially, just like a collection of short stories. I think that's, speaking of someone who's completed a lot of short stories and not completed a lot of long stories, the idea of just making a series of short stories as a book is uh, very appealing to me. So yeah, I uh, would recommend. You should pick it up. It's a great book. Buy the print edition. <laughs> Yeah, no, this this book is great. Uh, I love it. I, I think I don't think I've read anything else that Emily Carroll has done. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that there are other books that I should be reading. Because yeah, I, I remember this being a pretty significant book when I read it the first time. Yeah, uh, same with me. So this is a broad recommend. Uh, it's it's similar to what Kathleen said. Like whenever I find someone who hasn't read any, it's it's exciting. Uh, I have, you know, so this book definitely ascended Emily to an instant buy kind of uh, <laughs> kind of person. Uh, and so it's funny that you mentioned meeting her at TCAF. One of the more recent TCAFs that I went to was when when I arrived at the castle came out. And I went straight into TCAF directly to that table <laughs> to make sure I got a copy of that book. And it is it is really good. I think it it elevates uh, what she was doing. It's like she she kind of doubles down on this imagery and like the intensity of, of what 
she's writing in that book. So that one's really worth checking out. Another recent one is Beneath the Dead Oak Tree, uh, which was produced by Shortbox. And this was also really fun and had a really, really great twist. I also like that this book is uh, pitched as a teen book, which there really aren't that many teen graphic novels. Like there's a lot of uh, sort of young adult books and, and a lot of, well, not a huge amount of graphic novels for adults, but certainly more than there are uh, written for teens. Uh, and the idea of a, a book for teens, that's horror, that's comics. Like that's, if you have all those overlapping circles, that's a very small Venn diagram of, of books. <laughs> and I wish there were more. So I am delighted that everyone likes this book as much as I do. And I mean, of course, going into this, this book uh, was, it did win a bunch of awards and um, I think very, very deservedly has gotten a lot of acclaim. And yeah, of course, I would agree that I would recommend if you like this book, uh, checking out Emily Carroll's other works. Um, I also, similar to uh, Jam, I have assigned when I arrived at the castle and met Emily at Van Caff, I believe 2019. So I'm going to treasure that uh, forever. And as well, um, yeah, she, actually, besides these, uh, yeah, these wonderful print books, uh, a lot of, she does have a lot of um, short stories that are just available to read on her website, including one that actually does tie into one of the stories from Through the Woods in a delightful, oh. creepy way. So that's, I would say, definitely worth checking out. All right. I'm going to pull up her website now. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah. yeah, we won't even finish recording this. We have to, re we have to all read them immediately. <laughs> I also feel like um, it's just rare enough to find out there's some new Emily Carroll that I also feel like it's a, oh, drop, drop everything, clear my desk. They like click this link when, when there's, <laughs> whenever there's something new. And I was also really glad to see on her official website that um, she's apparently working on a new full length graphic novel. Hooray. Okay, what's next? We have to do... Shoutouts. Shoutouts. Uh, anyone um, have anything to shout out? I do. So this, uh, this conversation reminded me of a YouTube channel that I actually like, as we were talking about fairy tales being vaguely historical. This YouTuber that I follow, her name is Karolina Jabroska. I think uh, she's Polish, and she does uh, historical reconstructions. She did a, a fantastic video recently of trying to create a period ac accurate version of the Disney Snow White costume. So uh -huh. taking this the Disney Snow White palette and kind of elements, but then researching paintings of the era and trying to deconstruct like what the materials would be and how they would actually be made. And then, you know, lavishly embroidering pearls herself all over <laughs> uh, the material and things like that. She does fantastic work, a great YouTube channel. Sounds great. Oh, so um, I will shout out that um, speaking of short story horror single creator anthologies, I just got my copy in the mail from Kickstarter of the book uh, The Crossroads at Midnight by Abby Howard, which I really enjoyed. I've been a fan of Abby's Ooh. for quite some time. And I also, so a double shout out, I've also really been enjoying Abby's new spooky horror game called uh, Scarlet Hollow, which I believe the first episode is free to play on Steam. And I'm uh, really um, looking forward to, to the second part of it coming out uh, soon. And it's it's fun to see, a, you know, a comic creator whose work you followed for a while. It's fun to see them do something in another medium that's that is kind of cool and different. Okay, well, I'm going to have to open up another browser tab because <laughs> apparently there's a game on steam i have to buy um yeah Don't it's great it's... Recording. <laughs> yeah, you don't even like have a... to buy it the demo is free yeah, yeah, yeah. there we go no that's exciting i love uh horror games in particular so i and i love abby's comics so this is like there's peanut butter in my chocolate now um <laughs> So, yeah, okay, I guess I'm Jeff Ellis, and uh, I've just been regressing backwards uh, to my youth, so I'm just going to shout out the saga of The Swamp Thing by Alan Moore and Steve Bissett, because that's what I've been reading, which actually is funny, because that's award-winning uh, horror comics made in the 80s, 
And it was really interesting to be reading that while reading cutting edge uh, modern horror comics and seeing the similarities and seeing the differences. And uh, I, I'm going to just put like a big content warning on Saga the Swamp, Swamp Thing before you pick it up. But yeah, I don't know. I think they're pretty good horror comics still. I haven't been reading or watching anything. All I've been doing is working. But I am going to take this opportunity to shout out Kathleen's comics. Uh, Band versus Band is one of my favorite web comics of all time. Uh, It's great uh, online. It's great in print. Uh, However you can get uh, to read that book, you should. Oh, I'm going to second that one. Yes. yes, and I'll third it. Oh, thank you. Oh, wasn't expecting this. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad you like it. I guess I should make make some more of those. <laughs> There's yes. a lot online to read for anyone who hasn't read it yet. So, There's two whole print volumes, too. Our next book will be Sex Criminals by Chip Zdarsky and Matt Fraction. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Mm-hmm.